This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. State of Pediatric Research Across the Disciplines, 2016, by Patrick Kohanek. Thank you very much, Peter. What a wonderful introduction. Uh, I've already learned a lot this morning. Um, I, I thought I was, uh, a few weeks ago I was asked, could you summarize research in the field of pediatric critical care? And uh, uh, I said, wow, <laughs> I don't know, but I'll give you some thoughts about it uh, and from what I've seen. And I'm going to use the journal in my own uh, area of interest uh, to uh, to hopefully kind of uh, stimulate you to think a little bit. Um, uh, so in the roadmap of this, we'll talk a little bit about the perspective of this as the journal editor and also the perspective of this as an investigator. Many have said, oh, doom and gloom. Uh, pediatric critical care research is pitiful. You've just heard all we have are meta-analyses and all journals have a relatively low impact factor and... Our research is barely a blip on the funding radar. And uh, you could take away and walk away and say we're doomed. And, uh, but I think, uh, why don't we go to the PCCM editor's secret office in Pittsburgh to try to get some answers, okay? And there it is, uh, the bat cave. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think to really get answers, Let's first take a look at how the editor decides what gets published and what gets rejected. And you'll see there I am. If you look really carefully, you see there are two little buttons there. And if you zoom in on them, you see the answer, okay? And uh, all kidding aside, the journal is truly growing. It's growing at an incredible pace. And I believe, I believe very strongly, it's a reflection of the amount and the quality of the new research in our field. I, I joke because uh, to my editorial assistant, we'll be looking at a paper that we've just rejected. And we said, you know, 10 years ago, that would have been a feature cover article. And it's true. It's not just that we're getting attacked by all these papers. The quality of what is being submitted is remarkable. And here's some actual evidence of that. Here are citations of PCCM in 2015. I think we've really hit an amazing uh, spurt here. And you can see this is right off the uh, Institute for Scientific Information website. Wham, 2015, we're just taking off. And we're really on pace. And look at submissions. Last year was record, a record submission at 640. This year we are on pace for 828 submissions. And I think if you think back of what I've said so far, thank goodness we went to monthly publication this year. Otherwise, I'd only be able to push one button. <laughs> anyway, uh, the investigators in our field, I think, have 
produced some supplements to the journal that if you look at them, I think they tell us a lot. Uh, and uh, boy, we have uh, we heard a little bit about the pediatric ARDS definition supplement, and it's had a lot of social media attention. It's uh, it's it's been it's controversial. It's been a great dialogue, uh, and I think very important. And um, I'm really pleased to say that for many years now, the most downloaded and hit on document in the journal has been the pediatric head injury guidelines. And, uh, and I think both of these have done something that they're stimulating our field uh, to try to do more studies. If nothing else, they've said, look at the holes. And we've, we've, had to, we've embarrassed ourselves and said, we need to do something about what Peter was saying in the opening statements. And uh, we feel very proud in Pittsburgh and the traumatic brain injury arena with ADAPT, really trying to take uh, uh, and, and do something about this. And uh, uh, in August, keep your eyes open for something very special from the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society, a 41-article uh, supplement on the state-of-the-art in pediatric cardiac intensive care, spearheaded by Ron Brunicki. Uh, it's one of the one of many special things that we are trying to do with the Cardiac Intensive Care Society, and uh, it's pretty unprecedented a 41 um, uh, manuscript supplement. And you can imagine we turn these around like lightning, and so you are getting information unlike a textbook several years down the road, uh, right at right uh, at, you know uh, on, at, at your fingertips. And I think you will find it to be something really outstanding. Um, what has generated the most research? I think if we look at what is getting into the journal, you'll get a clue as to what's happening with, with, with research in the field. And number one, two, three, four, five, quality and safety. I, we have been getting bombarded with quality and safety. And to some extent, you could argue it's a trainee or a fellow project bonanza. But I've been pretty pleased at the quality of this. And people have really taken uh, this with with great seriousness and and really tried to turn it into an academic domain and topics such as nosocomial infection and what I'm calling PICU mechanics things like how to best round etc uh, are really getting a, a, a real examination now uh, in in a scientific manner. Uh, acute kidney injury, holy smokes. Uh, ten years ago, we had almost nothing on the kidney, and now with the new definitions of acute renal failure and the new biomarkers, we're getting, I guess you would say, a steady stream of articles. <laughs> sedation, uh, sedation, another area. And by the way, the numbers of articles you see there are what has been accepted in the last 12 months, just to give you a real numerical feel. Uh, wow, protocolized versus individual, we've heard a lot about that. Delirium, very, very hot topic uh, that has been heretofore for the last few years largely just allowed to happen. Uh, withdrawal, of course, has been there all along. Propofol and DEX uh, drive a lot of this as, as newer uh, approaches. Uh, traumatic brain injury, I mentioned. The guidelines, as I like to say, threw down the gauntlet and people have been really working at multiple places to try to 
fill in the holes. And ECMO, uh, we opened a section a few years ago on extracorporeal support because we were getting a lot of good papers on ECMO. By far and away, the most important and interesting question that you all seem to have is, what's the best way to anticoagulate on ECMO? It's a very controversial topic. And of course, outcomes, eCPR, post-cardiac surgery and VADs, all related to this extracorporeal uh, uh, academic uh, uh, approach uh, rather than really more as a purely service-oriented, let's save this patient in trouble. And so these are what I view as what are the kind of the top questions right now. Uh, some of the things that you'll be seeing in 2016, uh, AR, more on ARDS and sepsis, cardiac arrest, ultrasound, as you all know, is not only there for the caregiver at the bedside, but it's becoming an academic discipline, and people are really trying to do science with it, and it's terrific. And EEG, there's been quite an interest in, are we under-monitoring the brain in our patients, and maybe continuous EEG is a way to, to take a step in that regard. Uh, what about strategies to enhance global research initiatives? Peter mentioned it in the introduction, and I think a really cool thing is the WIFPICS Congress itself can just look in a mirror. And look what happened. Uh, I'm the only one that knew, that knew this, and so I thought it was really important to share. As the editor of the journal for many years, I looked back and saw I was averaging about five manuscript submissions per year from Turkey. Since the World Congress in Turkey, I have had 20 manuscript submissions per year. So hats off to the WIFPICS Congress. What a dramatic impact on research and interest in critical care locally and in, in stimulating. And uh, I think that's really a fantastic thing. And I can feel the excitement from Turkey in the submissions that are, that are coming in. And I think that uh, this is a really special thing. And it, I thought it's a very cool thing to share. Well, what about as the perspective of an investigator? Well, in my center, we're interested in head injury and cardiac arrest. And obviously, in the neonatal front, hypothermia has been so highly successful. Uh, you, can look at, uh, you can look at this anyway, death or disability, neuro, neurodevelopmental outcome, longer term outcome, even imaging effects, uh, and why such a struggle for us. And uh, we heard, again, in Peter's comments, uh, what I call daunting heterogeneity. There may be important developmental differences, but the heterogeneity is so key because the adult intensive care people are suffering the same fate. And uh, we look at FAPCA, and people have uh, you know, tried to dissect out FAPCA. What a great uh, piece of work by that group. And one of the things that it shows is, look at, about half the patients have all kind of pre-existing conditions, so different than a neonatal homogeneous type of population. And, uh, and this is not only true for the patients, but also for us. And the classic, of course, always is Guy Clifton's traumatic brain injury trial, where despite protocolized care, the fluid balanced range from ten, negative 10 liters to plus 20. So the heterogeneity hits us on multiple fronts. So it's really difficult to detect an 8 or 10% difference. Uh, this was brought to our attention many years ago, and I was pleased to see in pediatric critical care medicine. Uh, the uh, UK uh, Pediatric Intensive Care Study Group published an article looking at traumatic brain injury and said, we estimate studies 
designed to detect reductions in ICU mortality will require greater than 320 children per arm. And although this figure may be higher, it's a conservative estimate. And indeed, specifically, with a baseline mortality of 24%, assuming an 80% power, a goal of a 15% uh, a reduction in mortality to 15%, they said they would need 640 patients and felt the trial wasn't even feasible uh, over six years in the UK. I mean, they told us this, and uh, I think we've seen that kind of thing. But is there hope? I think there is hope, and I hope to present it in a few ways. One is, what about a monster effect? Okay, you'd say, well, in the animal models, hypothermia looked to be the most powerful thing, and it can't get that to translate. But is there a monster in brain uh, that, and we can think of this across all of our specialties, and you might say, Kohanic, get real, you're delusional, you must have ICU delirium, you know? And uh, there's, that's a crazy idea. But in fact, if you've been watching the adult neurocritical care world, they found it. In stroke, there's been a breakthrough effect of thrombectomy. Pull out the clot. Uh, don't break it up. Pull it out as fast as you can. And indeed, if you look at the number, there's study after study now. They're all positive. They're stopping early. And if you look, uh, take the EXTEND trial, they had a 31% improvement in independent outcome. And curiously, uh, working under the great Peter Saffer for many years, he used to always say in stroke, it's plumbing that matters. And he was absolutely right. And so in adult neurocritical care for one of their diseases, they did find a breakthrough. And this is now sweeping uh, the stroke field, I mean, period. And uh, so maybe there is something out there. But what else can we do to tackle the heterogeneity? And in my eye, in looking at what's been going on in both the pediatric and adult world, these are two examples, I think, that are really great examples. Uh, one, obviously, collaborating together on something like ADAPT, um, and uh, maybe we can, can do a really big collaborative international study and try to get some answers on the heterogeneity of our care. You've seen this, the, and Mike Bell has presented on this of the questions. Uh, our baseline care, we're trying to get an answer. Uh, things from uh, as, as simple as ICP management and when to start nutrition uh, uh, and, and, and other important questions. And boy, in looking at some of the, just the epidemiological demographic data coming back from the two, first 200 patients, we're not looking at any of the therapies, just the epidemiology is, is really, truly amazing. This study is gonna be really special. And, uh, I think it's at 840 kids entered right now, and already the largest study in the history of pediatric TBI. It's unclear if it'll be successful, but very important. I think another thing, if you look at it, we heard a little bit about the finances and the problems with that. I think ADAPT is a poster child for success. It is at the National Institute of Neurologic Disorders. It's ahead of entry. And uh, it's really being viewed as we are proving our worthiness. And I think one of the ways to get more funding support is to show them 
we can do it. And, uh, and so I think this is really great for the entire field. I also think that it's helped launch several ancillaries that have been funded. And uh, it's it's really an exciting thing, and, uh, and 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 in part following in the footsteps of FAPCA, which has done very similar kind of things, showing that we really can conduct a trial. What else might we do to improve clinical trial success? I'm going to talk about two things done by two other individuals that, to my eye, are really important opportunities. And one, for those who've been following, Hector Wong, and he spoke at this Congress. He's come up with his strategy of prognostic enrichment, which is to select the patients with a greater likelihood of having the disease-related event, mortality or, or uh, long-term outcome, and then predictive enrichment, select the patients who are likely to respond. And he has done this in two ways, with a biomarker approach and persevere. Uh, he, his data suggests that if you use a biomarker approach and you wanted to test plasmapheresis and multiple organ failure, what you would see is you could take the mortality in a predicted way from patients that would have 38% to 50% and look at the impact if you were looking for a 20% improvement. Uh, you, you start to get to numbers that, uh, that are, are really potentially doable instead of us failing just because of the numbers. And from the predictive enrichment using his multiplex mRNA strategy, you define these endotypes. Turns out that endotype B have higher expression of glucocorticoid receptors, and so the A group has a much higher risk of dying uh, uh, from use of uh, associated with the use of corticosteroids and uh, with 300 patients, and I think that these could lead to breakthroughs and this kind of approach. And the other approach I think we have to keep our eye on is how we design our trials. And the most beautiful lecture on this I've seen is from my own department chair, Derek Angus, gave one of the plenaries last year at the SCCM meeting, just a masterful talk on this. And in the adaptive trials, it's almost like the trial's alive. And you let the trial manipulate the strategy. Uh, just focus on the disease, have multiple therapeutic arms, and let the trial uh, uh, have it programmed so that it can help uh, design the strategy, emphasize on efficacy with relatively small sample sizes, and the therapies graduate to the next phase. Uh, the classic example of this is the iSPY2 trial, if you're interested, and the overall strategy is something like this. This is what we do now, randomize 50-50, A greater than B, and at the end we're 95 or 99% sure that A is greater than B, but in an adaptive response trial, here's the strategy. You, you get the data back uh, part of the way through, and a statistical model then says, hey, we need to change the randomization rule, and I'll show you here how this can impact the trial. So here's a planned trial of A versus B in 400 patients. They enroll 40 patients, and the data comes back looking like this, that you can see, wow, it looks like therapy A is doing better. And so the computer says the probability at this point is 78% that A is better. Let's start randomizing more patients to A than B. And when you do that, after 80 patients, you see that the probability is 99.9% .9 that A is better than B. And so with 80 patients rather than hundreds, you stop the trial. And uh, it's a faster answer, fewer patients exposed to the inferior therapy, 
certainly less costs. And uh, this can be done with multiple therapies simultaneously, and this is what's happening in the cancer world right now. And I think they're struggling more, more with how to, how to decide how to publish these types of things rather than is this a good design. And Derek suggests this is a way of really fusing research and healthcare, that you are actually exposing fewer patients to an inferior therapy, improving healthcare at the same time as doing the research. It's a really nice strategy. And the final thing uh, Dr. Remensberger said in the beginning of this, uh, the issue of collaboration, and I really feel that collaboration is flourishing better than ever before in our field. How can you not see this? It's really impressive. And uh, in our own place, Erica Fink has been working on Pangea, the point prevalence study, uh, to try to look at the burden of neurological disease funded by the Lairdahl Foundation. Uh, and it looks like something on the order of the, in the, in the 107 ICUs, about 19% of the ICU patients are neurocritical care disease patients. And I don't uh, plan to talk about all the findings of the study, but just as an example of, I think we are working together in the neurocritical care we're gonna start getting some of the key basic block information. So I really feel, and this is just a few of them, that there really is victory through collaboration. And, uh, and, and I, I really view the time right now as a very positive time. Uh, it is a golden age for us in research, and I think we're starting to get some questions. Let's not rest on our laurels. Thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.